0: There's no doubt the Employment Tribunal was a huge disappointment to me. Um, I thought that it would be conducted to much, much higher standards than it was. And um, I felt as well, I was, I was astonished really that there was no attention given to public safety in it. It was all just about the minutiae of employment law. And uh, all about really trying to catch me out or portray me in an unfavourable light to try and break down and destroy my credibility. And that's not really what these processes should be about, in my opinion, it should be about um, public safety. And we really didn't touch on that at all. So I'd be very cautious about going back through an employment tribunal. Having said that, I've no regrets about writing the book about it, um, because I think people need to know uh, what goes on. Um, And in terms of what followed, I wish I had my level of cynicism then that I do have now. Um, You know, I was completely duped by the sudden appearance of these emails. And when you reflect on um, what went on, then, of course, it would have been very, very easy for me to take my own life. Um, You know, I thought I was getting Alzheimer's or something at the time, such as the level of gaslighting.
1: Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life.
2: We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast.
1: So today we're pleased to welcome along Dr. Peter Duffy. Peter is a consultant urological surgeon. He was lead clinician of the department in Morecambe Trust from 2003 and in about 2008, they won a major national award for the quality and efficiency of this specialty service. He began to be concerned about the direction of the Trust and eventually stood down from his position as lead clinician and was eventually unfairly dismissed in 2016. As a whistleblower it proved impossible for Peter to find work in the UK's NHS and he took a job on the Isle of Man in early 2017 and in 2018 he won his case for unfair constructive dismissal in the Manchester Employment Tribunal. During 2020-21 to we had the Covid pandemic which almost completely separated Peter from his family for about 18 months as a result of the Manx lockdown where he was, he was now working. During this period, he was awarded an MBE for his work with the COVID-positive cases on the island. Really pleased to have you along today, Peter, to share your story. Welcome.
0: Thank you very much.
2: Hello, Peter. I'm very pleased to meet you. Thanks very much for coming along. I didn't realise that about uh, the Isle of Man during the um, COVID. So was it locked down altogether?
0: Yes, it was. Yes. The Isle of Man was one of the very few places in the world that actually beat COVID and eliminated it. Uh, so between, I think it was early 2020, it all started, wasn't it? And I think through to about the end of summer of uh, 2021, um, travel to and from the island was very, very heavily restricted. Uh, so you needed special government permission to, to travel. Um, but in the meantime, the virus was essentially beaten back and eliminated and only allowed back onto the island once vaccination levels had reached. Um, a sort of level where it was considered safe to do so.
2: Right. So, but in the meantime, you were kept apart from all the members of your family, were you?
0: Yes, that's right. The whole family are in Lancaster. Um, And um, yes, I think I got back briefly twice over a space of about 18 months to get to see them, which was pretty grim.
2: Yes, but indeed, another example, really, of the sterling service. So many of our Workers in the uh, health services do. So, anyway, as I said, very pleased to meet you. Um, so, you're a consultant urological surgeon. Is that something you always wanted to be? How did you get into that particular line of being yeah, a doctor?
0: Yes, I mean, it goes all the way back to my teenage years. Um, so, I always wanted to be in some form of healthcare, but I got to go for a day into an operating theatre in Preston where I grew up with a consultant urological surgeon and that just changed everything I knew from that moment on that I wanted to be certainly a surgeon and probably a a urological surgeon so uh, it took me two years of battling to get into medical school but I did and um, yeah I finally made it to be a consultant urological surgeon uh, in Morecambe Bay in 2000 uh, which was where I'd, I'd always wanted to work
2: Hmm. Well it's a lovely part of the world to be. Yes. Um, indeed so how did your career go up until 2014? fourteen? Twenty fourteen.
0: I'd like to think um, that my career went went pretty well so I was appointed um, as we say in 2000 uh, I became clinical lead or departmental lead in about 2003. Um, in the mid to, to late 2000s I think we did have a, a great department it, it certainly won A number of accolades and as you said a national award um, for the leadership quality of the department Um, and then it started to go a bit wrong I think probably 2011 2012 onwards I I wasn't really all that happy with the the sort of management priorities that I was coming across this was the era I think sort of leading up to mid-staffs there was a lot of pressure to become a, a trust at the time a foundation trust and I felt we were rather losing sight of, of what we should be doing as an organisation, which was offering quality care as well as quantity and trying to hit targets and things. And I was, I was also concerned about some of the things that were going on in the department, um, which sort of leads us up to, to sort of 2014, 2015, when I think things reached a, a bit of a climax, really.
2: So what happened in 2014?
0: We had, well, we had a number of, of problems in 2014. Um, I don't think we need to go into the details, but the, the year finished with um, an avoidable death. And this was something that I and others had, had been warning about for, for a considerable amount of time, that we were not really being uh, diligent enough, I felt, in my opinion, over the management of our emergencies, you know, particularly our sick uh, inpatient emergencies—they were just not being dealt with as rigorously as I as I felt that they should be. Uh, and in this particular case, we had a patient. Uh, his name is in the public domain, uh, Mr. Peter Reed, um, who um, over a bank holiday weekend, the Christmas weekend, ended up with um, sepsis as a result of a blocked um, ureteric stent. So for For non-clinicians, this is basically an artificial tube used to to drain the urine from the kidney down to the bladder. And Peter's stent was due for a change, overdue, in fact, for a change anyway. He went septic over the weekend. The first warning signs were fairly obviously there early on the Saturday morning. And it took until Tuesday for him to have what really should have been an emergency operation. And so that really was where um, my... My concerns really started to crystallize and and that in turn led on to the events of 2015 um, and a coroner's court appearance.
2: Thank you very much. So obviously, as you just mentioned, this went to the uh, coroner's court. And what what happened then? What was the result of that?
0: Well, Peter, Peter died in the early days of uh, 2015, so he did have his stent changed by myself. Uh, even though I wasn't on call, but it it was too late and he he never regained consciousness. Um, Died in the very early days of 2015 and he went to a coroner's inquest in, um, it was about, I think probably May or June of 2015, and the coroner was clearly concerned about the the sort of operative delays and gave us an order uh, as a department to discuss the case and to come back to her with a consensus opinion on whether there had indeed been a significant delay and the the thing that um persuaded me the event that persuaded me to go outside the trust with my whistleblowing concerns was the fact that two colleagues refused to allow this to happen so we never did have um a proper discussion within the urology department um as a whole nor did we feed the departmental opinions back to the coroner Uh, To be fair, what actually happened after that act of disobedience was that the trust carried out their own internal meeting, but paradoxically, that excluded everybody from the urology department. So we did, in the end, the exact opposite of what the coroner had ordered. And that was the point where I felt I needed to go outside the organisation. And so I went to the Care Quality Commission. And that really, I think, was the beginning of the end for my career in Morecambe Bay. Uh, things started to happen in rapid succession after that.
2: It's interesting to hear you use the word disobedience, uh, Peter. It's not a word one often encounters in these kinds of situations.
0: Um, I think it's probably just the most appropriate wa- uh, word. I mean, we were given a clear, distinct order by the coroner. This wasn't a, a kind of a side where she took me to one side after the inquest was over and said, by the way, I'd like you to do such and such. This was actually given to me when I was in the witness box and under oath, and I was instructed to get this done. Um, and um, I was equally firmly told it wasn't going to happen. So as far as I was concerned, this was a, a major breach of our professional responsibilities. And as far as I'm aware as a layperson, a, a breach of the law because um, a coroner's court is, a form of court of law, and if you're given an order, you, I presume, are legally obliged to carry it out, and we didn't do that.
2: But there weren't any particular consequences from, from that action?
0: No, none at all. Uh, not for the people who um, were behind this. As far as I'm aware, um, there was a sense, I think, from the Trust that um, this was something to be... Well, in my opinion, glossed over that this was quite embarrassing. And I think the the sense of embarrassment was added to by the fact that we just had the Kirkup inquiry into midwifery in Morecambe Bay. And part of that had involved an event where people had been coached in what to say to the coroner. So there was already a sense of, you know, we can't afford to get on the wrong side of the coroner here. We've already been criticised for trying to play with coroner's inquests over the midwifery scandal we mustn't be seen to be caught out again trying to derail a coroner's investigation. So I think there was a sense from the trust that rather than holding people to account here and forcing them to do what they've been ordered to do, this was better um, glossed over and um, carried out in a different way to the way the coroner had instructed.
1: I don't know Peter whether it's your use of disobedient but as, as you were talking I was kind of reminded um, you know that with that repetitive pattern I was reminded of children when they're caught out and they've been caught wrong and they tell lies because they they don't know how to manage the, sh- the shame of it all but you kind of hope for better from adults in positions of responsibility um, you know there's something about ho- holding out hope for organisations that take responsibility and use that that spotlight mistake to try and learn and do better, don't you?
0: You would hope so, yes. But I, I think there was a sense at the time that we can't allow this to become known. We can't allow it to get back to the coroner that her orders have been disobeyed. And I think ever since then, there's just almost been layer upon layer of more attempts to try and disguise um, the actuality of what really went on. it I think it just would cost too much for the organisation to admit what has gone on. Um, and so we have had years and years of attempts to try and hide what happened, which has had all sorts of consequences, including for the bereaved family, of course.
2: Hmm. So by that time, do you, did you feel that you'd followed all the routes that you could do within the trust in terms of their procedures?
0: Yes, I did. The medical hierarchy certainly knew what had gone on. They were copied into some of the correspondence. Um, and when we then went down this route of um, setting up an internal uh, discussion group and what was called a root cause analysis, Uh, investigation. To me, at least, it was clear that we were not going down the route that the coroner wanted. Um, There was a determination to make it happen, uh, which was not going to be reversed from within the organisation. So it seemed very clear to me, particularly since I'd been given the order to make this happen. And therefore, any breach of that order was at least in part my responsibility. Um, I didn't feel I had any choice at this point, but to go outside the organisation. And I I first went to the General Medical Council. Then I decided that wasn't the appropriate um, sort of forum for this. So I I withdrew my concerns to the GMC and instead went to the Care Quality Commission.
2: And what did they do?
0: Um, Not a huge amount for a couple of months or so. So I think it was October when they um, finally talked to the Trust. I went to them because I wanted them to talk to all of my departmental colleagues. So I gave them the, the mobile numbers of about a dozen of the major players in this, including the people who I had concerns about, just for the sake of completeness and fairness. And I asked them to, to phone these people and talk to them, um, but they, they didn't. They, instead, they went to the medical director of the Trust assured them that well yes there might have been problems but they were all historical everything had been sorted out there was really nothing to see here and it was at the end of that month um, that the various uh, retaliations and detriments and so on started happening which ultimately led to me losing my job a year later
1: it's interesting in, uh, in your window that you thought about into the GMC and then decided against it, so my guess is that you had enough evidence to be able to individual doctors at the GMC for their failure to to follow the instructions. Yes.
0: The GMC are very formulaic in the way that they deal with these things. So they wanted that they basically said, look, we want one or two names, we want one or two incidents um and then we will investigate these individuals and my feeling was that that didn't reflect the, the whole um actuality of what was going on um which was a much broader sort of issue than one or two failings of one or two individuals um, and also my concern about going to the gmc was that um any individuals who i did report would immediately work out who it was that had reported them and would know straight away who the whistleblower was. So what I was hoping was that the CQC, who I think have a much more flexible mandate, would start phoning people up, get a broad opinion from the whole department and would then decide how they took things further. And that would leave me without having the finger pointed at me for being the whistleblower. But it just didn't work out like that. Yeah, I think Naomi was going to ask me maybe about um, the CQC and um, their reactions to all of this.
2: Yes. Hmm. So but it is interesting because Naomi and I are both, from our own personal experience, quite familiar with these rather Kafkaesque oh, yeah. uh, experiences which become more convoluted as time goes on and the yes. more you find yes. out. Yeah.
0: Yes, it's just become a, a more and more dense web of, I can only say lies and deceit, really, that's gone on here. I think precisely because people don't want to admit um, the sheer you know, intensity of everything that's gone on. And I guess from a corporate point of view as well, it's just easier to just keep spinning and um, putting out different versions of events and pointing fingers of blame elsewhere rather than to simply concede what's gone on.
2: Yeah, and don't you find? Well, I'll put it another way. When I was in a not totally dissimilar situation, I found that it began to affect um, my whole work. Really, I don't, it was, yeah, focusing on the work which was mm-hmm. to do with, you know, relating to people. Yes, all, all the time was became a real challenge.
0: Yes. Yes, that's right. And, and that's largely why in the end, I've decided to resign my job here on the Isle of Man is that I don't feel I can um, fight these sort of battles where you're almost looking over your shoulder the whole time, whilst at the same time, giving your full attention to what's in front of you, uh, you know, with your day to day clinical work. Um, I, I just feel I'm, I'm not really safe. I'm, I'm determined to try and defend myself here but I can't do both things at the same time. I can't defend myself and be uh, you know, attentive to my day-to-day work.
2: It's difficult to do, to do both. And then of course, one is running the risk of committing errors, which may be quite unrelated to the original yes. situation um, and confounding the, the problem for oneself. Yes. The next question was, uh, you know, a bit related to what we were just talking about because when we interviewed a whistleblower from the education sector she and i actually uh, we both spoke of a, a vague sense of they who are unhappy mm. within the organization did you have any sense of who you might have antagonized within the, the trust
0: yes yes i think that the majority of the pushback against me the active pushback really came from the medical hierarchy. Uh, I think there was a sense, you know, this was essentially a medical and surgical scandal, really, and that um, the medical hierarchy who were directly sort of in line of responsibility for this really were not happy about me um, continuing to speak up about it. I think there was a sense from them that this could be neutralized and could be um, papered over. And they wished that I would stop, you know, essentially peeling the paper back and revealing what had really happened. Um, I think in terms of other senior executives and so on, I think there was more a sense there of people just wanting to stay out of the way and not get involved and um, not being seen to be knowing what was going on. You know, just deliberately looking the other way.
2: Mm. So what impact did it have upon your your well-being going on?
0: it had an appalling impact quite honestly and we hear this again and again don't we from whistleblowers um both mental and physical so um 2016 when not all that long before I I lost my job um I was I'd like to think an extremely fit ultra runner you know I was doing multi-day ultra runs and covering nearly 200 miles in a single event um you know very very fit mentally healthy and so on and I just went to A bit of a wreck really by the end of 2016. Uh, I couldn't find any work uh, so my constructive dismissal was uh, was late summer of 2016. I was out of work for several months. Um, I tried to find locum work in the NHS, nobody seemed remotely interested in having me Um, and in the end, uh, just at the point where I was looking at um, the Middle East and Australia, New Zealand and so on which would have been devastating for family. Um, I actually managed to get this job on the Isle of Man, which is where I still am now.
2: Hmm, well, thank goodness for that.
1: Yes. Hey, Chad, you could hear there that finding further employment after whistleblowing has been difficult, and we've heard that from other people as well, that it's very hard to, to get work. Do you have a sense of, of what makes that so difficult?
0: Yes, I think that it's largely because organizations perceive you as a whistleblower, as essentially being a non-team player, as not being organizationally loyal. And um, it's something I, I do really disagree with because um, I, I always wanted to work in the NHS, even before um, I got my desire to be a, a consultant surgeon. Um, I'd gone through a phase I wanted to be a pharmacist and so on. So I'd always wanted to work in the public sector and in the healthcare sector. And I, I think you would struggle to find anybody who was more loyal to the NHS and more, I would like to think, you know, hardworking and committed and dedicated than myself. And the whistleblowing was not an act, from my point of view, of sort of treachery or backstabbing um, or any kind of disloyalty to the, the organisation. I was trying to stop the organization sleepwalking itself into the same sort of mess that it had already got itself into once with the the midwifery scandal and the Kirkup inquiry. And the irony, of course, is that those warnings that I repeatedly tried to give were ignored and we did end up in another mess, uh, exactly as I predicted and and tried to stop happening. So I I would have said that um, the impression of organizations about people like myself is the exact opposite of the sort of people we really are. We are intensely loyal to the organisation, but trying to change things from the inside and going against the sort of prevailing um, viewpoints often results in you then being seen as a maverick um, or somebody who can't be trusted.
1: Yeah, It's quite tragic, isn't it? that action taken that that really would be protective of the organisation to address Deficits or flaws or vulnerabilities ends up being seen as being uh, problematic, as if as if you're trouble for for highlighting it. Yes, that's
0: right, and I, I think that's a common oh, thread in a lot of whistleblowing stories.
1: It is uh, certainly kind of people that we've spoken to hear that that's that repeatedly, and I just wondered what it's been go, like going to work for another organisation. How how easy has it been to trust in in their integrity, moving from uh, one trust to another?
0: That's a very good question. Um, I've not had any problems here on the Isle of Man. I mean, first of all, although it runs on the same lines as the National Health Service, um, in fact, it's completely separate from the UK's NHS here. The Isle of Man um, is actually technically not part of the UK. It's a, a Crown dependency. Um, so it makes its own laws, it has its own parliament and so on, and it has its own health service here. So although we work very closely with the NHS in England, um, I'm totally separate from it here um, and the managers when I first started here actually made it very clear that they appreciated that I had taken a stand on clinical standards in NHS England um, and were really quite welcoming and enthusiastic about that um, and I have to say as well I've very much kept my head down here um, <laughs> I've, I've sort of learned my lesson about being forthright and outspoken but luckily, I haven't had to face that dilemma here where you think, again, there's wrongdoing going on. Should I be speaking out again? Um, you know, I've not seen that. So, so far in this job, I've, I've been comfortable.
1: I'm pleased to hear that that, you know, that experience hasn't been repeated because we have heard from a previous whistleblower who then moved to another service and then found a similar experience. I'm pleased to hear that it hasn't been um, your experience at Morecambe um, in the Isle of Man. But changing uh, changing service and moving away from Morecambe Bay hasn't been the end of your troubles, has it?
0: No, not at all. So um, we had a whole series of punishments and sort of detriments that were dealt out in 2016 towards me, which resulted in my having to resign in uh, the late summer of 2016. Um, as we said, I then got the job on the Isle of Man. And we then went to an employment tribunal um, because I really felt what had gone on was was terribly wrong. And the Trusts Board had made a, a major point in about 2015 of promising that there would never be any detriment or dismissal or punishment to any whistleblower. Um, and of course they then did the exact polar opposite of what they'd promised to do. So uh, although it was a difficult decision, I really wasn't minded to just let them get away with such a, a brazen breach of their promises and their responsibilities. So the whole thing went to an employment tribunal, which was another horrific experience. Um, so I don't know whether you want to explore that further, but I, I had very high hopes for the employment tribunal. I've you know expected there to be very high standards of legality and honesty and disclosure of all evidence and all the rest of it. And I have to say my experience of the employment tribunal was, was was awful, it was terrible. I wouldn't recommend anybody put themselves through that. Um, so that was 2018. Um, I won my case in the end for unfair constructive dismissal, um, but ironically, the NHS then took me back to another employment tribunal to try and claim costs at the end of 2018. So it was all all just Kafkaesque and surreal, really. So they lost that, and i was so appalled by all of that that i then decided i was going to write a book about it all go on (laughs) okay so yeah so the book the book came out of um really a comment that was made by my solicitor that my witness statement uh, read very well. So it was a 50 page A4 witness statement. And I just got this vague sense of, well, maybe I should put it out there for people to read and they could use it as a model for future cases. And then, of course, you start to think, well, it wouldn't take all that much to turn this into a small book. And then as you start working on it, it, did, it turned into a book. Um, I couldn't get anybody to publish it um, or even to uh, be an editor for it because it was so, considered to be so controversial. So in the end, uh, I got an independent legal opinion and self-published on Amazon. And to my surprise, um, it sold remarkably well, but then um, it led to the next sequence of events in the, the sort of retaliation.
2: You leave us hanging, all the time, Peter.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, so the book was published, I think, in, uh, I think it was mid ish of 2019. Um, and it did, it sold incredibly well against all my expectations, and it it clearly caught the attention of a lot of people, including local MPs and journalists and so on. So um, to cut a long story short, what then happened was an NHS England um, overseen investigation using a a private investigatory firm to look into some of the issues that I'd raised, and this began, I think, in... uh, early to mid 2020 um, it was preceded by a tip-off which i got from within morgan bay to say that there was a vendetta against me for what i'd i'd done for uh, essentially i think having the temerity to publish a book about everything that had happened um and that there was tampering with evidence going on and as soon as the investigation got underway there were two new emails that were suddenly brandished in my face and i was told i'd sent these in 2014 they were uh, fairly damaging to me. They, they, they certainly pointed the finger of blame for Peter Reed's death, the gentleman who had died in early 2015, they, they pointed that finger of blame back at me. Uh, it was alleged I'd sent them to three colleagues. And most damagingly, I was told, well, we think we can believe in the authenticity of these because there's nothing in the historical record uh, that would undermine their authenticity so uh, this completely wrong-footed in my opinion the whole uh, of the nhs england inquiry sent it off in a, a new diff dis- a new direction uh completely rewrote the facts around peter reed's last days and had the most profound effect on myself I, I, for a good number of months i was really uh, a, a huge suicide risk to the point where it wasn't so much if, but when and how, Um, it was a it was a a truly horrific time. And I I did for a while, even though I would got very significant initial reservations about these emails, um, I was persuaded in the end that I'd been told the truth, that there really wasn't anything in the record that would undermine their authenticity and that I must have made uh, both a misjudgment at the time and that my memory was playing tricks on me and that I'd misremembered what had happened Um, so that was late 2020 and um, that was I, I would say the lowest point by quite a margin in my my whistleblowing
2: yes well I think you're describing very well there Peter the sort of dark side of procedures like this and how they really affect people and also I mean, what occurred in my situation and that of colleagues that I knew about, and it sounds like your situation too, the huge amount of resources that go into if if not if even if one doesn't use the word vendetta, the resources which are put into overcoming you as an obstacle.
0: Yes, that's a very good way of putting it. Yes, I mean this was really quite well thought out. And uh, although there had been previous attempts, uh, I felt to try and change the narrative over Peter Reed's death, this was really quite cunning. It certainly took me in for a while. And in fact, it was the bereaved family who raised the first really serious question marks over these emails because they revealed that they had put in a freedom of information request for all email evidence relating to Mr. Reed in uh, late 2018, and these emails had not been found. So um, that was quite good evidence to suggest that obviously these emails had not been there all the way back to 2014, and also that I'd been misled when I was told that there was nothing in the record that might undermine them. Um, Now, it was only in 2021 that purely by chance I managed to uh, come across some of the correspondence between my old trust and the employment tribunal in 2018 which made it clear that all of the accounts in which these emails now existed had been searched in 2018 and they were all completely empty of these emails they were not there in 2018 and even more compellingly uh, the judge who was in charge of the uh, the case the preliminary hearing had ordered the organisation to go back and carry out another search um, in 2018, specifically uh, this time looking for anything in those accounts to do with Peter Reed. And once again, these emails hadn't existed in those accounts. Now, had I been told that at the time, then of course it would have been clear what had happened, and there would be no way you could regard these emails as authentic if they weren't there in 2018. But it now appears and this has only just come out in the last week or two, that in fact, Morgan Bay withheld the information and the internal correspondence about these searches from the NHS England investigation, uh, who then told me that there was nothing to undermine uh, the credibility of these emails when the exact opposite, in fact, was the case.
1: It's really really quite shocking, Peter, um, to hear that level of i suppose sinister yep. practice practice and but also to hear the impact that it you know that it can have on your own mental health when you're engaged in this process for such a long long period of time you know the fact that you end up then confused or questioning whether you've whether you've actually sent yes. um sent, sent these emails you know you'd end up doubting yourself because of the gaslighting process that's happened it's just you know really really awful to to hear about and i wondered you know when you look when you look back has that made you regret going to employment tribunal or writing a book you know would you would you do those things again if 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 you could roll back time
0: um yeah that's a that's a really good question um in terms of going back through the whole of this process um there's no doubt the employment tribunal was a huge disappointment to me Um, I thought that uh, it would be conducted to much, much higher standards than it was. And um, I felt as well, I was was astonished really that there was no attention given to public safety in it. It was all just about the minutiae of employment law and uh, all about really trying to catch me out or portray me in an unfavorable light to try and break down and uh, destroy my credibility. And that's not really, what these processes should be about, in my opinion. It should be about um, public safety, and we really didn't touch on that at all. So I'd be very cautious about going back through an employment tribunal. Having said that, I've no regrets about writing the book about it, um, because I think people need to know uh, what goes on. Um, And in terms of what followed, um, well, I just wish I had my level of cynicism now, or sorry, I wish I had my level of cynicism then that I do have now, Um, you know, I was completely duped by the sudden appearance of these emails. And when you reflect on um, what went on then, of course, it would have been very, very easy for me to take my own life. Um, You know, I thought I was getting Alzheimer's or something at the time, such as the level of gaslighting. And of course, if I'd done so, nobody would have been any the wiser. The facts would have been rewritten about the case. The report would have been published um and it would never have been revealed that in fact there was very very crystal clear evidence within the NHS uh, Morgan Bay's own internal records that made it impossible for these emails to be genuine
1: I'm really glad you have put your story out there Peter but I'm you know sorry that it's within such an awful awful context and and that impact on you but I suppose it it, it not, not from your point of view, but in terms of thinking about the trust Action it, it and the Employment Tribunal, I wonder if you have a sense of the impact that this fight with you has had upon the patient? It's like the patient's been lost in the middle.
0: Yes, and I, I think that the people it's had the biggest impact on really have been obviously the, the bereaved relatives of, of Peter Reid. So the, I mean, one positive thing that did come out of the NHS England inquiry was that they turned up about 520 plus cases of harm including avoidable deaths which again mm-hmm. obviously would have stayed hidden um, forever if I hadn't taken the stand that I did but it, I mean it's, it's taken its toll certainly on me but also I think very much on the bereaved family because for several years after Peter's death um, they only had what I think has been pretty universally acknowledged to be a totally inadequate root cause analysis report to go on, which I think everybody agrees really didn't address what had gone on. And the irony was that they only uh, got in touch with me through, again, a, an incredible coincidence, a bit like me finding the, um, the correspondence between my old employer and the uh, employment tribunal over these fake emails. Um, the bereaved family tracked me down. Uh, have you seen my picture in a newspaper because of the employment tribunal um, proceedings so they um, although they, the the newspaper reports didn't name Mr Reed they figured out from the facts that it might be their father and they managed to contact me here on the Isle of Man so they've the, the latter stages of this the bereaved family have essentially lived through it with me uh they've i think had just as much uh of an intensity of ups and downs as i have and in fact when i had this terrible period of questioning my own sanity whether i was was losing it completely and wondering if i was going to end up being sectioned or something um it was my own family and the bereaved family really that got me through that so uh, so they i think have been as traumatized as anybody by all of this
1: well it's the last thing that a grieving family need isn't it and especially if there's been a degree of medical negligence there and just you know I'm remi- I was reminded as you were talking about a, a previous podcast we did with, uh, with a solicitor Dino Noccivelli who spoke quite, quite a bit about then you know that actually what often stops people from moving on um, in these kind of scenario and he, his, his concern has really been about abuse from organisations or within organisations and but what stops people moving on is the inability of an organisation to hold its hands up and take responsibility and just say I'm really sorry we made a mistake and actually that taking of responsibility can go a long way towards people healing and being able to draw a line and do something and move on and and the family are prevented the families of any any relatives in these kind of scenarios are prevented from moving on with their grief because of that sense of injustice aren't they
0: yes i think that's right i think um, the bereaved family have been left with this sense of uh, an incomplete story i think they they would still feel that this the full truth has has not been told and they're obviously themselves, I think, are upset about the fact that I'm still being pursued through the GMC uh, over a sequence of events which which they don't recognise either in respect of the death of their father.
1: So Peter, what, what has this process taught you about yourself?
0: Oh, um, <laughs> well, I mean, if I could go all the way back to um, 2015, 2016, and if I had known what was facing me, I would not have thought that I could... Be here today, having a sort of sane, coherent conversation with you. Um, I, I, um, I I wouldn't think of myself as being sort of brave or anything like that, but uh, it's probably more just dogged and bloody-minded and just determined that this level of, of terrible, in, in my opinion, dishonesty and spin and organisational attempts to constantly try and rewrite the truth to sort of portray it as as their truth rather than the truth um just a determination to 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 counter that and to fight against it because I I still retain my intense loyalty to the NHS and the idea of a publicly funded uh you know free at the point of delivery health service but this is not the way to go about delivering it and I I do think this kind of of systemic dishonesty and cover-up culture will ultimately end up destroying the NHS and therefore you know I wouldn't be true to myself if I didn't carry on fighting that.
2: How have you managed to keep going throughout all of this Peter?
0: (laughs) With difficulty (laughs) as we talked about I I very nearly didn't. Um, I, I think you know it's been a very very long six years away from from home and away from the family and Um, I guess you just um, you just try and look forward to the next little nice thing, whether it's, you know, the next meal, the next walk in the sunshine after work in summer, the next trip home to the family. Um, Just little things like that. I I try not to think about um, the fact that, uh, you know, there's an awfully long time ahead of you. Uh, or I try not to think about what the family are doing at home. You just try and concentrate on the here and now. And the the paradox is that unlike, I guess, probably quite a lot of people, um, I'm probably at my best when I'm at work and I'm busy and I'm distracted. Uh, I'm at my worst when I'm on the island here at weekends and I can't help them but be reminded of the fact that I'm not at home and I'm separated from my family. so I, yeah, I just try and concentrate on the here and now and the next few minutes or the next few hours. And you just try and keep going.
2: Yeah, that does sound very tough uh, indeed. Do you, do you listen to music or read books to, to um, distract
0: yourself? That's a very good question, um, because I, I used to a lot, I used to love music. Um, So, you know, I could sit all the way through, you know, Beethoven's Sixth, which is probably my favourite piece of music, beginning to end um, and just totally immerse myself in the music or, you know, read through an entire book in the space of two or three days. I have not managed to finish a single book with one exception in all the time I've been here on The Isle of Man. Um, I read Jeremy Hunt's book Zero and I did manage that, but that was because that drew me in as an NHS whistleblower. All the other books that I tried to read, I get halfway, three quarters of the way through and I just lose interest. Music, two or three minutes um, into it, I've lost interest and my mind's off at a tangent. I'm thinking of other things. So, so no, I, I, I used to find those enormously therapeutic, but not anymore.
2: Thank you how do you think this is all going to end
0: well um i think uh, unless i i change something i think it's almost inevitably going to end badly for me there is this sense of double jeopardy or even multiple jeopardy um which which legal people will be familiar with this idea that you're just put back on trial again and again and again and again until the sort of prosecuting organisation gets the result that it wants, and that is the feeling here, is that um, the NHS is just going to keep coming back at me until um, it's really kind of destroyed and taken me down. So I have just in the last two or three months made the decision to um, to hand in my notice here at Nobles and, and step down. Um, I, I had very much hoped to to keep going for a good number of years. Yet, you know, I still. I love operating, I always have done, it's my vocation. But I think when you are coming under attack like this, um, all the time, and you know, this current GMC investigation has been going on for around two years now, it just becomes so difficult to keep your concentration and to keep your, the standards that you like to hold yourself to, uh, those standards high. And, And the worry I've got here is that as time goes on, there's more and more attrition I'm getting more and more tired, more and more distracted. And I um, I feel becoming a less good surgeon. And I think it probably is time to just say enough is enough. Um, that it has taken enough of a toll on me to say that I should stop working. Um, because I don't think that this these repeated attacks are going to stop until I've stepped down.
2: Well, I'm very sorry to hear that because, you know, what a... A waste, really, of a tremendous uh, medical uh, talent. It,
0: it is what it is, really. Um, I, it is, it's just a, a dis- desperately disappointing, and it's a, a very flat, very unsatisfying way to end what sort of 40 to 45 years of, of commitment to the National Health Service. But um, I can't see this ending happily now. I think. The- <laughs> My old employers are pretty clearly determined to make sure it doesn't end happily. And it's probably better that I bow out in a fairly dignified way, in a controlled way, and also that I give my employer here adequate notice of me stepping down so that I can be replaced rather than suddenly dropping out because things go wrong or making some some error because I'm distracted by everything that's going on and by having to watch my back the whole time.
2: Well, I I agree that it's terribly important to uh, have some control and to feel that you have some control over your life and your future. Thank you very much, Peter. You've been terribly generous with your time and your honesty and in telling us uh, about this really rather terrible uh, experience that you've, you've had.
1: Thanks so much for sharing your story with us today Peter. I'm sorry to meet under these kind of circumstances with this being the focus of conversation but really pleased you're able to join us and and tell us about what's happened.